Oh, that was a nice intro, Rob. Changed it up a little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, you have you have a little intro you could read for Doctor Thigpen, right? I do. Yeah. Everyone. Uh, everyone claims uh, we tend to be unprofessional, so I figured I'd do the professional thing and write a little <laughs> intro here. So, uh, so uh, Doctor Thigpen has earned a BA in religious studies from Yale and an MA and PhD in historical theology from Emory University. He has served on the faculties of Missouri State University, the College of St. Thomas More, and St. Leo University. He has published over 60 books and more than 500 journal and magazine articles. His work has been circulated worldwide and translated into 16 languages. And in 2008, he was appointed by the USCCB to their National Advisory Board. So now you're probably wondering why we ever assumed that such a uh, learned and well-published author would fit with our show and uh that's because uh dr thinkman has been known to do improv comedy with some of his students in campus coffee houses wow i didn't know that <laughs> so uh dr thinkman real quick i uh i wanted to i so i actually know you from watching the journey home years ago with marcus grodi that was my first introduction to you um what year did you actually come into the church it was in 1993, so in April of uh, this, this coming year, it'll be 30 years. 30 years. So, like, I, I say all the time, if it wasn't for the converts of, of the 80s and 90s, the Dr. Hans and you and uh, Stephen Ray and all of those guys, like, I don't think I, because I'm a cradle Catholic, but I don't think I would be a Catholic today, maybe. I mean, I might be Catholic, but I don't think I would have any concept of how knowledgeable I am on the faith now without those guys. Well, you know, this, uh, people say that kind of thing. I just say it's um, when you're a convert, you don't take the faith for granted. And so, you know, for someone like us, we, uh, I know what it's like to be an atheist. You know, I know what it's like to wake up every day, not believe in God or the soul or life after death or anything. And to just think, what's the whole point of life? And then I know after my conversion to Christian faith, what it's like to, to be Christian, but not to have a wonderful fullness of faith we have in the Catholic Church to to know Our Lady, to know about the saints, and above all, to have the Eucharist. So, um, for folks like us, we can never take it for granted, and that, now, I think that's what keeps us going. So, so what were you before you were Catholic? I was uh, a walking ecumenical movement. <laughs> so again, I was Presbyterian as a kid, uh, became an atheist at age twelve, and uh, rediscovered my faith at, at age eighteen at the end of high school. And then at that point was either associated ministry or in uh, just as a member of the Methodist, the Baptist, the Lutheran, Presbyterian, Assembly of God, several non-denominational uh, groups. So a little bit of everything. I was actually uh, ordained in a non-denominational church when I was in grad school at Emory. Wow. So let me ask you something. When, after you came into the church, did you do like the, the Catholic speaking tour? Like like. I mean, you always had the, you know, you'd have these guys come to your parish. Did you basically do those tours where you went around speaking to different parishes around the country? You never, I, I had full-time jobs I had to keep <laughs> keep up with. And certainly, you know, never traveled as much as, as my dear buddy, Dr. Scott Hahn and others. <laughs> uh, but I did do some. And it was, for me, it was more conferences. So maybe several times a year. But uh, I was either teaching uh, full-time or editing, uh, you know, full-time editor. So it was really hard to schedule frequent frequent visits around. Now, did you write books before you became Catholic, or are all your sixty of your books Catholic? No, I started out writing for a general Christian market, 
And uh, my first thing for published for a Catholic market was uh, when Pat Madrid was putting together his book, Surprised by Truth, that he edited. Um, yeah, I've invited read that. Me to, invited me to be one of the authors for that. So the first chapter is my story. Yeah. And that was that was my first publication for a Catholic audience. I'd only been a Catholic for, for a few months at that point. Now, I mean, I'm, we don't, we never, just so you know, we never discuss any, like, we really don't get into anything controversial in the church or anything like that. Has, has, has thing have things changed under Francis for you though? Like, I, I mean, it feels almost like the, like the, the way it, it's almost like the lighthouse Catholic media crowd kind of, kind of simmered down a little bit once Francis came into the, into his papacy a little bit, like things kind of died. And then you started getting a lot of these you know, more of the radical people starting to step forward and stuff. Did you notice like a significant change after Francis came in? Uh, well, certainly, in, you know, in Vatican policy, administration, appointments, that kind of thing. And of course, that's going to filter down uh, to the, the parish level, to the diocesan level. So, yeah, I think it's in many ways a different world from what it was, certainly under yeah. John Paul and Benedict. Yeah. yeah. Now, oh, I'm sorry, Rob, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think technology has kind of changed a lot of that too. You know, less less speaking at a parish and more, more doing things like this. this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and with COVID, I mean, oh my goodness, you know, uh, I did my first conferences by Zoom uh, during COVID, so that uh, yeah, that I've was going to get. I've had to learn a lot more digital stuff. My, that was you know, that was digital, where I was going to go next. In the past couple of years, how much the dynamic has changed with different people you're mm-hmm. speaking to, and a lot of this stuff is online and digital. Now, before you wrote this book, you were you wrote a book about uh, aliens, and um, I saw you on Matt Frad's show. I watched you, I watched you on Matt Frad's show, and you wrote a book. Like when you're writing, I mean, you wrote sixty books. That's a, that's an unbelievable accomplishment. <laughs> I mean, what is the what is the writing process that makes you go from writing a book about aliens and and this kind? Because your book wasn't really about aliens. It was it was a hypothetical, basically. Like if aliens, then this. It, you know, it wasn't really. Uh, you weren't because I saw uh, there were some people that were like getting upset that we were having the conversation about aliens, as if you were saying there could be alien life out there. But I think your book was more hypothetical in saying if there was, it, it wouldn't defeat the purpose you know it wouldn't defeat uh the story that of salvation history that we have yeah it was basically an apologetics book and i've done that all my catholic life you know starting with with surprised by truth that's a chapter in there there because there have been for centuries now people who have who are not christian at all typically who say that have said to christians if there is extraterrestrial intelligent life then your faith is wrong your bible's wrong Mm -hmm. it's all wrong and you also run into, you know, some Christians, including some Catholics, who say it can't be because if it is true, my faith is wrong. And um, and so the point of this book is to say, you know what, this conversation is not new to our generation. It's been going on for centuries. It's been going yeah. on even before Christ. And um, Catholic theologians have discussed this and been reasonable about it. They've disagreed, but um, but they never they never kind of panicked and said, oh, if it's true, my religion's false or or, or agree with the you know the critics that if this is true then, then my religion is false. Our faith uh, is deep and rich and wide and nuanced, and um, just as we were able to accommodate uh, the Copernican revolution, so called, in which uh, Copernicus kind of stated again an ancient thought that you know the Earth's not really the center of the universe, uh, which even Aristotle had taught and Thomas kind of followed along with him. But no, it's not. But you know what? That doesn't really mess up our faith, even though we kind of tended to assume it. 
So my, my argument is the same thing, that looking at the history of the conversation, looking at the text and scripture and catechism that people have raised as an objection. Um, I'm just trying to say in that, no, if it turns out, I'm not making the claim it is, but if it turns out that there is extraterrestrial intelligent life, um, our faith can accommodate that. It'll, they'll they'll yeah. be God's creatures. As John John Paul II, St. John Paul II was reported to say in a, in a public audience when a little girl asked him, what about what about the aliens, you know? And and he said, they're God's children, too, without missing a beat. So I, I think we just need to, to see that that's the case. And if there should be disclosure, there's some things going on in Congress right now and, and beyond the scientists. It's okay. It's okay. We, we'll have a yeah. lot of questions to ask about them. But um, our God is great. And he's, uh, what he can do is far beyond anything we've imagined. What was the title of that book, just in case anybody's interested? Yeah, it's called Extraterrestrial Intelligence and the Catholic Faith. And then the subtitle, Are We Alone with God, uh, Are We Alone in the Universe with God and the Angels? Yeah. So now, you now after you write that book, how do you go from writing a book about aliens? <laughs> and what's the decision process to say, okay, I want to write something about the life of St. Joseph as seen through the mystics? Well, for starters, uh, St. Joseph has always been dear to me. When I became Catholic um, and was beginning to know the saints, I chose him as my, my confirmation patron saint. And uh, he's done so much for me and for my family with regard to the family, with regard to career. Every time I've had a serious situation, you know, turn to turn to St. Joseph for his help. And uh, we even our, our home up here in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains in North Georgia. Uh, we've called the St. Joseph Refuge. Uh, we have a sign out front and we have images <laughs> of him all through the home. And I could tell you a great story about it. It would take too much time now, but how he confirmed for us that uh, this was the house for us to, to retire to. And uh, so, as with so many books, a lot of the books were my ideas. X was the extraterrestrial intelligence book, but others were the idea of a publisher who came to me and said, Paul, would you consider writing this book? We think you'd be the guy to do it. And this was the case that uh, my dear friend Connor Gallagher at uh, Tan Books, who's an old friend I used to work for that company, uh, they approached me about it. And I said, are you kidding? You know, St. Joseph's my hero. I'd love to do this book. They actually published, it was a reprint of a book from the 1950s by Raphael Brown, in which he compiled from various mystics, mystics A Life of Mary. And so uh, Tan republished that in, uh, I think it was the 80s. And so they wanted to see if we could do a companion volume to that focused on St. Joseph. So that was what, you know, gave me the immediate idea for it. But it was like many of the other books I've done, as soon as somebody, as as somebody suggested it, I said, let me add it. Let me go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of had a feeling this might be a publisher's idea. Um, and the thing about this book is, so we were fortunate enough that you guys sent us um, an advanced copy. And so I've read, uh, like, St. Anne Catherine Emmerich's, uh, some of her visions. And I've read, but what you did with this book was kind of amazing because, you kind of combined all of the different mystics and you wrote it as one seamless story so that it's not um, it's not broken up into like jumping where you're citing every time you do something like that. In the beginning of the book, you you kind of explain how you did it and what your what your whole goal was here. So as you're reading it, you're reading it as one seamless story of the life of St. Joseph. And there's some amazing things about it. There's parallels between uh, St. Joseph and Joseph the Patriarch, right? So Joseph the Patriarch, you're seeing he has all these issues with his brothers, and then you see St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really how Scripture works anyway. So if you want to know St. Joseph, you would study Joseph the Patriarch, and you would kind of get a feel for something like that. That's that's really insightful. And it, um, 
you know, I just, I, it had been done the other way for the life of Mary. And uh, what I wanted to do was, again, not kind of piece together, just have a collection of excerpts, but to draw from each of them and, and weave it into this one narrative. Um, and, you know, several reasons for that. I think it, it reads more easily and more beautifully. Um, there are places where I had to condense. There was so much. There were hundreds of pages to choose from. And so I had to select passages. Uh, several of the, the mystics uh, really were focused on the life of Mary, but necessarily Joseph entered into that. So mm -hmm. I was drawing out of that the things that had to do with Joseph. Um, all the mystics were women, and they, uh, I'm not trying to be sexist, but uh, uh, there were things that would, were often focused on by the women mystics, like how the ladies were dressed, you know, or even how the men were dressed, and what kind of fancy fabrics the, the wise men brought. They go into great detail. Uh, I, I I paid attention to you know to some of that it was it was good, but on the other hand it, I really wanted men to read this yeah. because St. Joseph is so important to us, so I tried as much as I could to focus on Joseph as he acted you know the man how his actions <coughs> displayed his character, and to show how what he did um, just reveals to us that he was a man of remarkable faith and integrity and uh, courage and fortitude and so many other virtues. So it's, um, you know, another reason, too, for, for having to kind of weave it together that way that, that reminds us that we're not supposed to take these visions as gospel. We're not mm -hmm. supposed to take them even as history. Um, is that some of, some of the details in the accounts differ. They contradict. And so that should be an indication to us right away. Okay, this, this is not gospel or even history. Um, I like to say it's more like, like sacred drama. Um, if you look at the best of kind of what I would call visionary cinema, where you see a realistic detail fused together with with beautiful imagery. Um, and for an example of that, I would talk about Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. And as it turns out, there actually are scenes in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ that the viewers might rec have recognized that's not in the gospel, but they were right. fine with it because it's, they're teaching beautiful lessons. And you find out that some of those scenes were actually taken from these same mystics. So for yeah, from Saint Saint Can Saint Can uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich specifically, right? Yes, and Maria de Greta was the other one. She, um, I did actually did a book called uh, "The Passion of," and it was forty reflections for Lent on the Passion of Our Lord, and did it kind of at the time that the movie came out, and uh, in the introduction talked about how I had been myself uh, had the way pointed by by Gibson to these two visionaries because. I read somewhere that he was drawing from from their visions. And uh, and so every day that I wrote, there was a reflection on a particular excerpt from a vision. But the um, so, for instance, uh, people may remember from that, that uh, from his movie, how the scene is after the flagellation, the scourging of our Lord, that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of our Lord, are out on the pavement with white linen, trying desperately to clean up his, his blood off the pavement because it's so precious and and that's the point you get driven home to you. The, the blood of Jesus is so precious in addition to their grief. And then a third woman comes out who is Claudia, the wife of Pontius Pilate, who helps them, who by tradition actually became a Christian. That's an ancient tradition. Right. Well, that's, that scene came from one of these mystics. So uh, the point I'm making is that so I, I wanted to treat it more like that, a, a sacred drama. I didn't want to have a passage where I say, well, this mystic says this, but this mystic says that. It, I just wanted to tell the story. And uh, that's how I did it. Did, um, is, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. In cases of that, when there was a contradiction, how, how did you how did you resolve that? Was there, you know, one or two mystics you gave more weight to, or 
did you just find whatever was fitting with the narrative that you know you had at the time? Yeah, and you know, in particular, you know, like there was an ongoing that one one mystic saw um, our lady's uh, parents as both still being alive when she's brought to the temple, and the other one, uh, you know, not at that time, and. And so I had to ask myself, okay, how does this work out in the rest of the narrative? And it made it a little simpler to you know to go for one rather than the other. Right. And um, so things like that. Uh, sometimes I won't say that one one scenario was more believable than the other, but uh, just some, somehow spoke to me more deeply. A lot of it had to be a subjective call. And you know, what's what's really resonating <laughs> with me, and seems to have resonated with so many people. So I'll admit there's a lot of subjective you know stuff in this in the sense of the shots I had to call, but still I, I, I trust, and I've been hearing from readers that when they read it, it's still going to really uh, press them to appreciate and understand better the kind of man Joseph was. Yeah. There's, there's parts of this book um, where when you read it, it almost seems like fairy tale. It's like, Oh, come on. Was he really the, so, and, and as I was reading it, I, I was saying that like, you know, this almost seems so amazing that like, can it be true? But then you like the, the thing is we think about uh, like when you hear stories about Padre Pio and Padre Pio was able to read souls and you hear Padre Pio was able to buy locate. Right. And then you think it's St. Joseph and the Blessed Mother. Like, do you not think that God gave them more graces than any of the modern day saints than we could ever imagine. And you see how Joseph handles certain things with Mary. There was one point that my, uh, I was reading it and I felt like, wow, do I fall so short as a husband? And as a joke, I'm reading it. My wife is doing laundry in the den and I, and I just got on my knees and knelt before her and I go, my queen, how may I serve you? And she just burst out laughing at me. She's like, yeah, okay, idiot. You know, but, but St. Joseph really, St. Joseph probably really did like after the guilt he felt after doubting Mary probably did drop to his knees and felt terrible that he ever had a doubt in his mind. And even the, the beautiful scene where, um, you know, according to, to one of the visionaries, there was a custom of the day where the first days living together, that they would under the same roof, that uh, they would spend time kind of talking and trying to study each other and see how they can, you know, what's the best way to go forward as a couple. And in that period, how each one's trying so hard, <laughs> to submit to the others, she to him because he's the head of the household, uh, but he to her because she's the mother, gonna be the mother of God, and the humility and the the deference, I guess, is a better word, maybe even the submission, the deference they're trying to show each other, and now they have to work that out. It's almost comical, and that's the sweet thing, you know, to me. It's uh, because these are two human beings; they're they're very amazing, extraordinary human beings that that God the Father would entrust His own Son to their care for this time on earth. And yet they were human and they had, had uh-huh. their stroke or Joseph especially in some struggles. And If I remember right, uh, an angel had to come and tell St. Joseph more or less to, to act as the head of the household. Correct. In that it's case, kind of, I don't remember the scene exactly, but yeah, he had to have some help in being convinced that this is, <laughs> this is what he should do. And I mean, put yourself in that position. You, you're talking to a blessed mother and you're, you're supposed to kind of take charge here. It's uh but it's, uh, you know, I, I think about scenes that brought me so much closer to him that 
So we know so little about him in scripture. Everybody, you know, agrees on that. And from early times, people have speculated. Um, one of the earliest books outside of the canon of scripture that we have, it's, it was written maybe 50 years after the, the Gospel of John, uh, the book of Revelation, that period. Um, it's called the, the Gospel of James. And the church did not include it in scripture along with other, you know, the other books. Uh, so that tells you something right there that it's, it's not reliable as gospel. But some of our earliest traditions about St. Joseph come from that book. So the, the names that we use for, for Mary's parents come from that book. And uh, the tradition of Our Lady being presented in the temple as a young girl comes from that book. So already early on, I think you've got a mixture of some things that I think pretty clearly would be the reasons why the church didn't put it in the canon of scripture. But at the same time, things that probably are historical tradition. I mean, you've only got one or two generations at most since the events happened. And it's, you know, it's from that part of the world. And um, so you've got that going on. But by the time of the Middle Ages, then what you begin to have is various mystics having visions. And uh, so it's not so much somebody kind of committing it to, to writing as a book. Usually it's, it's more visions, locutions that they, report. Sometimes they'll have a secretary, you know, dic taking dictation. Uh, some of them they kept to themselves because they thought that was the best thing to do. But then a spiritual advisor would say, no, you've got to, you've got to record this and share it with others. So yeah, you know, yeah. were there anything, was there anything as you were reading that, that really hit you? Like, I'll tell you right now, when, when we were reading this book, me and Rob both loved the story of baby Jesus being washed in the tub and St. Dismas being having leprosy and being washed in the tub. Like that, that, that story crazy. was a, it was such a beautiful story where St. Dismas as a baby um, had leprosy. And uh, so his parents, his father was a thief, you know, and a, and a, you know, and he brings Mary and Joseph in when they needed help. And Jesus takes a bath and then they, they wash baby Dismas in the tub and uh, baby Dismas, has his leprosy healed. And then later on the cross, St. Dismas is the good thief who says, when you, when you, when you uh, come into your kingdom, please remember me. Like that was such a beautiful story. Were there any others that really stuck out to you when you were reading that? Well, like, wow, I never, I never knew this. Well, let me mention, you know, there, there actually is an you know, ancient tradition about St. Dismas that he's in some way encountered Christ on the, you know, on the, in the on the way to Egypt there. Uh, some of the older stories, it's that he was he was the thief who uh, had not uh, who had kind of how do I say avoided what the other thieves had planned to do. In this case, he's the son of the thief who had, but eventually becomes uh, becomes a thief himself and still has to have the life of repentance that, at the end. Um, so that's striking. There's another story, you know, goes back early on that about how when they do get to Egypt, the problems keep arising because the the, the every idols. time they go anywhere near the idols, the idols fall flat on their face. <laughs> and that's interesting because that's also a very ancient tradition uh, that that's what happened in Egypt. And um, and in the story, it's, it's beautiful that when they're going to come after the family because, OK, these guys are doing this somehow. We don't magic or sorcery. They're making it happen to our idols. That's an insult. We're going to get them, get the family that the wiser you know, of the, the elders said, wait a minute. Don't you remember in Egyptian history? That there was a time when when these people uh, were were liberated by their God from Egypt, and He brought all kinds of plagues on them. It's the same God. We better not do this, or He might bring plagues on us. And once again, you begin to see those beautiful parallels with the Old Testament. That they're they're already making that parallel, 
and uh, a parallel that's made in scripture itself that out of Egypt have I called my son, which originally referred to the people of, of Israel, but then referred to Jesus as well. But um, the notion, too, that, that eventually what's going to happen in Egypt, like in so many pagan countries, is that the idols will fall when the gospel comes to be proclaimed in the face of, of uh, uh, in the teaching of Jesus, in the face of Christ. The idols are going to fall to the earth and, <clears throat> and lose their power over the people. So I, I love that as a, as a foreshadowing of what was going to happen. <clears throat> one, thing, uh, one thing I found interesting was in talking about uh, St. Joseph's um, young life, um, how he would hide in the cave that, that, that Christ would later be born in, but also how he um, had a lot of interaction with the Essene community. Mm-hmm. In, in Bethlehem at the time. And, um, you know, I'd never, I guess I'd never heard or heard that, you know, there was a lot of connection between Christ and his family in the Essene community. Um, and I was just wondering if you had any more information on that or any, you know, any, any insight into that. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, um, again, we don't take this as gospel or even as history necessarily. Uh, this is just what they saw. And in the introduction, I talk about when quote this wonderful scholar of, of of mystical experience, how God Himself in these experiences and visions He gives is, is like an artist. He'll paint and take artistic license for certain things. So we shouldn't expect all the details to agree. But um, in in this case, the oh, help me remember. Okay, you, what was the question again? I'm sorry, I got off on that. Uh, um, any you know? Oh, the essence. The essence. The essence. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. But it is interesting. Now, whether this was by the time of the vision, visionary who reported this, or whether it was after, you do have uh, biblical scholars, some of them claiming that there seems to be an, an influence of the Essenes on the life of John the Baptist. Because of his living in the desert, they had the Baptist, the, the, the Essene community in the desert. Um, because of the ascetic lifestyle, which was very unusual for, for Jewish people of the time, the Essenes, at least some of them seem to have had that. Now, other scholars have debated that. But it's, it is interesting to me that there is some scholarly discussion, of, totally apart from mystical visions, that that well, could be also, the case. Also, Jesus. So if, if you look at even the, the gospel story where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper as the Passover up in the upper room the night before the Passover, right? And that's because the Essenes have a different calendar than the the Jews who are using the temple because the Essenes don't believe the temple is a valid temple and the sacrifices there are not. So what does Jesus do? He's not having a, a, a lamb sacrifice that at the Last Supper. He's sacrificing bread and wine because the Essenes believe that the temple was no longer consecrated to God. They didn't have the, um, they didn't have the uh, Ark of the Covenant there. So there's, there's definitely evidence that even when Jesus goes and says, um, go down and get the donkey uh, or the ass for me to ride in on, he's going, he's telling somebody there's, there'll be a man there going to get water with an ass. Like a man shouldn't be going to get water. It would usually be a woman's job. And this is a man doing it in the middle of the day. So he may have been an SC. I mean, it's nothing like you said. It's not doctrine or anything like that, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Jesus and John the Baptist both had a lot to do with the Essene community. So, yeah, at least some apparent influences, and uh, yeah, it's it's not at all beyond the realm of possibility the way these are described that even in their their childhood or youth uh, could have had some some encounters with them and, and encounters. They, the Essenes seem to have been people of very deep faith, even though the temple community didn't like that too much. You know the, the way they looked. 
Um, and a very deep faith, and that's that's what some of the mystics saw. Is a very deep faith that uh, it made a great impression on both Joseph and Jesus. Yeah, the uh, the Essenes are uh, a really interesting group because when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, <clears throat> these are the scrolls that the Essene community had. So a lot of um, a lot of Catholic doctrine was actually confirmed by the Dead Sea Scrolls, and and it's really like the beginning of monastic life with the Essene community. I mean, these are men, like you said, like John the Baptist living in the desert and eating wild honey and locusts, you know, um, Rob, there was a couple of other things that you pointed out. I remember you, uh, you texted me a few things that, that really stood out to you. Well, I guess, um, the first one is, is there's always, you know, you always hear the question whether St. Joseph was old or young, right? Oh yeah. And, yeah, um, yeah. That's right. You know, this was, was kind of recently raised with father Calloway's book. Mm -hmm. on the consecration of St. Joseph, you know, and, and I notice in, in your work here that um, he was, I think early third thirties is, is where you put him at. Um, and I was just wondering if, if you found that as consistent in, in throughout the mystics or, or if there was some, some question there and you went with the younger Joseph. Yeah. I, um, that's one of the areas where there were tensions of the stories between old and young Joseph and, most of them tended toward the older Joseph. Uh, I did, you know, quote one of them in the 30s because I thought that's kind of a nice medium <laughs> uh, age. Although keep in mind that 30s was, you know, considered a lot older than it would be today. The lifespan, average lifespan was much shorter. Um, but the the passages that would have shown them by some of the mystics considerably older, I just decided that would be one thing that I didn't want people stopping in the middle of the story and start having this debate with themselves or others <laughs> about St. Joseph's age. I, I think I did include it one part where um, someone <clears throat> is is mocking Joseph to his faith, face um, about having a wife who's so much younger than he is. But even if he's in his, in his 30s and she's probably a teenager, you know, late, late teens at that time, uh, they could have easily made that comment. So I thought that's, right. that's not claiming that he's an elderly man by any means. Yeah, there's there's um, there's. That, that it, it definitely seems like the mystics do in in the book at least it seems like they do hold to a younger i mean uh, i i kind of hold to a younger view of joseph i, I don't know i don't i don't i'm not crazy about the whole 70 year old joseph marrying a 14 year old girl <laughs> well I, yeah i i tend to the younger too but i but i do think i get the impression sometimes that some of the mystics were following what was the mo the more common tradition of thinking of him in an older way um, but I just, again, I didn't want to, I didn't want that debate to enter the story. So kind of split the middle there with choosing the passages that would, on the one hand, he'd be seen to be, you know, not, not so old to us, but on the other hand, to his contemporaries might've seemed older, but certainly not an elderly man who only by miracle could make the, the journey to Bethlehem and again to, to Egypt. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was there was um, parts where even on that journey where um, Mary would give Joseph a let Joseph ride uh, the donkey at times, and she would take the walk sometimes. Like it really is funny to to see the contrast between these two holy holy saints as they're going along, and and it's like Mary really had Mary wants to submit to her husband, and her husband's caught in this scenario where he's like she's carrying the mother, she's carrying God in her, you know. And it's really interesting to see that dynamic between the two of them. Yeah, I think it may have been that the way it turned out was that he 
he finally insisted, no, I'm not going to ride while you're walking, but I'll walk next to you. And, right. You know, yeah. and so that was another way kind of where they would defer to each other. He defers to her desire in her humility to give up the donkey for a while, but she defers to his desire not to ride while she's walking. And so that's, again, it's a beautiful picture, whether it's historical or not. It just presses us to think about their relationship, their humility, their deference to each other, their desire to do the will of God. And I love the especially the story, well, the one about the journey to Bethlehem, but also especially to Egypt. Um, you know, we know from Scripture, he has the vision with the angel in the middle of the night. Get up. The child and his mother are in danger. Get out of here. Go to Egypt. And so here's a man who gets up in the middle of the night. It sure seems to indicate he's he's, he's packed, and so they leave right then. He probably tools of his trade are back in Nazareth. So he, he doesn't have any way to support them not right away. He probably doesn't know the language of the Egyptians. He probably has no connections in Egypt, doesn't know anybody, doesn't have friends. Um, he's not going to be welcome there. They won't because they're they're Jews and, and these are pagan people. And just getting there, the road there is terribly dangerous. Would have been at that time. Thieves everywhere, um, scorpions, venomous snakes everywhere. What kind of man would it have taken to get up in the middle of the night and say, yes, sir? And do all that. Uh, what kind of faith would it have required? What kind of courage? What kind of fortitude would it have taken for a man to, to, to be like that? And so if nothing else, the sacred drama, as I put it, just like the you know Passion of the Christ, it presses us to think, given what we know in Scripture, oh, my goodness, here's here's how it could have been. And even if it's it was somewhat different from this, it would have been something like this. And that shows us, it reveals to us the man who was chosen. Yeah, so right now, Rob and I have been, um, we are reviewing uh, the series, The Chosen. And so we, do, you know, each episode comes out and we and we come on and we review it. And one of the things we point out is it's, it's, a, it's a very Protestant show, you know, and it's written by Protestant director and a Protestant writer. And they have this lack of um depth because they don't have the mystics and like you're saying it's not that the mystics are gospel right but it's it gives you a fuller picture and we understand holiness in a way that i don't think protestants are, are capable of understanding it's there's something about the saints and seeing the way they live their lives that a lot of it does sound like, oh, come on, this is crazy. I mean, we have stories of the saints from the early centuries where, you know, St. Dennis gets his head cut off and he picks up his head and he walks to, and he continues preaching the gospel with his head in his hands. And it sounds absurd. It sounds crazy and it's ridiculous. But there's Saint Anthony preaching to the fishes. Yes, yeah, St. Anthony yeah. preaching to the fish. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is, we do have incorruptible saints. We do have Eucharistic miracles. And our God is a God of miracles. And he's a, he's a God who creates saints through grace. And it's, and you see a level of grace given to, look, I'll tell anybody who uh, is interested in this book. If you're a husband, especially, it will challenge you as a husband and it will make you see you, how you, how you handle yourself as a husband and how maybe you're impatient with your wife at times and how maybe you get impatient with your children. And it'll really make you uh, take a, take a second look at yourself and really, I mean, I, I, I went to confession yesterday. I told these guys, I said, I'm going to wait on confession. I'm waiting in line for confession and the people in front of me are taking 20 minutes each and I'm getting frustrated. And I'm like, what are you people doing in here? It's like, 
Say, say the kind and the number and be, be get going. Let's go. Come on, hurry up. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to miss confession here because you guys are taking so long. And it really hit me in the middle of thinking that way. Like, oh, come on. Just just settle down. Be more patient with Pat. And a lot of it had to do with reading how St. Joseph handled certain situations. I'll, I'll tell you, after reading how he got, uh, after learning of Mary's pregnancy and, and having, you know, the angel and God, uh, calm his his anxiety, I guess. How he got down no, because they the weren't doubts. I I misspoke Sorry. before when I said doubts. They weren't doubts. He was very anxious because he sees Mary starting to show, and he doesn't doubt, but he's 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 just very confused and very anxious. So I somebody had said in the comments the fact that he doubts is a very Protestant idea. That's not how the book describes it. I misspoke. But um, after hearing how he he got down on the floor and started washing the floor, which was a woman's job, Mary's job. And, and thinking that if, if the greatest man that ever lived, you know, the man who, who raised Jesus Christ could do that, then I should get up early, you know, and, and do some stuff for my own pregnant wife. So it would, uh, it's kind of a <laughs> kick in the pants. <laughs> it does. It challenges us. And at the same time, I think it really inspired me just to, to, you know, that's part of why we have the, the saints are recognized by the church so that we can have role models. And I can't, can't live exactly the way Joseph did by any means, but, um, I've, you know, remember the old bracelets that people used to wear? What would Jesus do? Yeah. They had the initials for that. That was the seventies, right? The Jesus. Yeah. Movement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, <laughs> but, uh, I often think, you know, the question, what would Jesus do that often since his life had to be limited on earth to certain scenarios and situations, one of the reasons we've been given the saints is that <clears throat> they help us to answer the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? because they're imitating him and they're showing mm -hmm. holiness in that situation. So what would Jesus do if he were uh, put into a, a Nazi death camp? Um, St. Maximilian Colby. That? Well, look, read that. Yeah, look at St. Maximilian Colby to see what he would do, for instance. Or, or what, would, what would Jesus do if, um, if he were in Ireland during the time when the, the uh, priests were outlawed and masses were outlawed? Uh, what would you yeah, do? St. Well, Patrick. Still have, well, no, I'm talking about way, you know, later under the under Queen Elizabeth, for instance. Oh, oh okay. You know, yeah, yeah. He he would do what my, one of my ancestors, Blessed Margaret Ball, did. He'd still yeah. have the masses and he'd have the priest and, and she died because of it, you know, and gave her life for that. So they help us to answer that question. And and so that's one of the things I love about reading this is of course it makes me say, Oh golly, I fall so short. But at the same time, it it gives me a vision of what of what can be and could be and should be. And uh, refreshes me that way and says, okay, now, you know, I, I don't have to be confused about going this way or that way. That's that's the way to go. Yeah, there's there's a, there's also a level of um, God wants us to have a devotion to the saints, because if you believe in the communion of saints, we're, we're, what we're talking about is the saints are our family, right? Like these are our brothers and sisters. And and unless you know your brothers and sisters and your siblings there's there's not going to be a connection there. So it, having a having a devotion to St. Joseph, God will grant little favors if you're praying to him, things like that, because he wants you to fall in love with your siblings in the faith, because he wants you to know your family. He doesn't want you to just have uh, a temporal understanding of God. He wants you to have an eternal perspective on things. He wants you to look back and see these heroes of the faith throughout time so that you do fall in love with them so that it's 
I mean, I, that's how, that's always how I viewed the Saints. It's like, I have this devotion to Padre Pio where I feel like he's my older brother and I really, truly love him. And it's, it's because God's granted me little favors when I prayed to St. Padre Pio, you know? Yeah, and, I, I, and, and seeing it that way helps us to understand why God allows them to help us. That the, the veil of death does not say, okay, now they're in heaven. They can't do anything for us. Um, I used to, when I'm like, teaching RCIA, uh, I tell a story from from uh, when my kids were little. They're now in their 30s and 40s. But uh, how my my little son, when he was about three, before they had Velcro Velcro tennis shoes, um, he'd have trouble, you know, tying his shoe. He didn't yet. And one time back when we still had hard copy newspapers, I'm reading the newspaper in my my easy chair, and in front of me, he and his uh, older sister are are playing on the floor together. And all of a sudden, he stops and says, "Sissy, would you tie my shoes for me?" Now, did I heard that, and I was right there. Did I respond, how dare you ask your sister yeah. to help you when <laughs> I am right here, and you should ask me directly because I am your father? No, my response was, and, and she did it. She said, of course, buddy, I'm happy to, and did it. My response was such joy because I said, she's showing his love for him. He's showing his trust in her. I want them to help each other. I want them to know each and, and love each other, and that's how it is with, with our Father in heaven. We're, we're family. Like you said, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And of course, he wants our older brothers and sisters to help us and to take pleasure in helping us. And, and we take pleasure. So we're not stealing any glory from God. By yeah, doing like, like you just said, like there's nothing that brings a parent more joy than to see your children love one another. I mean, they fight all the time, right? Our kids are constantly fighting and ready to kill each other. But when you see your kids get along, I mean, especially, I mean, I have my son tortured his sister's tortured them growing up and now they're starting to get along a little bit and i see they're starting to hang out and it's such a touching thing to see the siblings get along and yeah. it really is the same thing with god now uh how how many years are you married uh dr thigpen let's see we just celebrated oh golly let me get this right 40 43. oh man you better hope she's not listening no 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 79, <laughs> 79 so yeah, yeah, is that that's right? Forty three. Seventy nine okay. would be forty three years. Yep, yep. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I'm born in eighty two and I'm oh, forty. Golly. Oh, yeah. okay. So it should be forty three years. Um, and how many kids do you have? We have two with us, and uh, you know, still on Earth, and, and one we lost between them. Okay. Them. Now, yeah. did uh, do both your are you both your children practicing? Did they, were you able to successfully pass on the faith? Um, we did. I I can't. My, my daughter, especially, is working for the church, has a beautiful family, six kids. My uh, my son's wandering a little bit now. Yeah. Listen, it's not. Listen, you could be the greatest parent in the world. This is not a testament to you. Look, I mean, I have. So I kind of I, I mean, I open up about it a little bit. So I have three kids. My oldest son, he gobbles it up. I mean, I have no problem passing it on to him. My youngest daughter, she is like so eager to, to, to show me how much he's learning. But my middle daughter, I'm having a really hard time connecting. Right. So she's, she's 15 and it's, I mean, I try to, sometimes I see I'm talking to her and she rolls her eyes and it's, it's like, and you don't want to bang them over the head with it. You don't want to go overboard with it. And I didn't mean to get personal. I'm just, I, the, the, the idea is just it, look, being a parent is really difficult and I think that like little influences like this, where you're where you're reading about the saints, you're reading about Saint Joseph. Maybe you'll pick up little tidbits that you think maybe could help out as you're passing it on with your children. But yeah, I have one that I'm really I'm having a hard time connecting with her. So 
it's, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping that something somewhere, but we, we try to instill these things in them when they're little so that if they ever do hit that rough patch, they have the foundation to look back on and that something clicks from their childhood and things like that, you know? Yeah. And, and there are, you know, sometimes very serious adult situations that impact their lives and can damage their faith, no matter how good the foundation. And yet mm-hmm. uh, I take such you know great hope and from the example of folks like St. Monica, praying mm-hmm. for St. Augustine. And uh, so, you know, we'll say more than that, but. Yeah. Listen, we all, that's, that's what, it, that's what it comes down to. We all just have to pray for it. Look, being a parent is the hardest thing in the world. So if you're looking for good models, I mean, St. Joseph is the greatest model you can have. Rob's kids are tiny. He's got a little two-year-old and a, and a, what, a three and two they are, Rob. Um, they're Maddie's going to be four next month and Iggy's going to be two next month. And his, and his wife has one on the way. So yep. it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, look, we're, so we're probably around your kid's age, right? So we're, if your kids, like I'm 40, Rob's in his uh, mid thirties. So we're, 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 we're getting on right this journey. And, and like I was saying at the beginning of the show, the, the converts of the eighties and nineties passed the faith on to us. And now it's almost our turn to try to bring that to the generation coming up underneath us, you know? So what are you laughing at me for, Rob? <laughs> I don't know. It just reminds me of the Goonies. This is our time. <laughs> uh, Dr. Thinkpin, what's your plans for your next book? Did the publisher ask you to do something? Do you have something private, uh, personal project you're working on? What do you got coming up? Well, some great things. Uh, I think I can talk about them. The uh, Tan books has been my publisher for a while. I've long before ever they're amazing i love tan did lots of books so they do tan and stuff. sophia the two two best publishers i would say yeah. so uh great uh got a, a video product with them that's um i think it's okay to say is uh, publicly will be related to the book on extraterrestrial intelligence like a video lecture series um awesome. some podcast commentaries I, I better not say any more than that but i think really great stuff that i'm happy to do and then um I'm I'm hoping and 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 the publisher said to me if I write this you'll he'll, he'll publish it uh, the story of the Georgia martyrs you may never have heard of I'm a, I'm a native of Georgia and uh, most folks don't realize that all the way back in the late 1500s 1500s um, there were Franciscan Caucasus, Georgia right pardon me in the Caucasus no no Georgia oh, the United States okay. yeah where I grew up. Um, all the way back in the 1500s, there were Franciscan missionaries bringing the faith to Native Americans of that area. And uh, I mean, at one point, uh, after several generations of that, there were tens of thousands of Native Christians in what's now Florida, Georgia, Alabama. Um, but the the history books that they say get get written by the winners, and because the Franciscans were Spanish, uh, the Catholic missionaries were oh. Spanish, and the British ended up controlling it. That's the sad part of the story. But anyway, in 1597, um, five Franciscan missionaries who were along the coast of Georgia uh, were martyred for the faith. And the blood of their their martyrdom, as Tertullian said in ancient times, became seed of the faith there. And so their cause for canonization uh, was begun some time ago and has been making progress recently. The If if Rome, I think the Theology Committee in Rome is looking at it now, we did the Reportatio some years ago, but um, these things take time. But if the theology committee there in Rome uh, concludes that, yes, and I think, well, I can't anticipate it, but I hope they will, that they were, in fact, martyrs. It wasn't because of some other reason that they were put to death, that um, that then they'll next step will be to be to be made blessed. 
beatified. Oh, excellent. And they'll only need, they, they won't need a miracle for that. And they'll only need one miracle for the final canonization. That's awesome. So they, they really died uh, in testimony to the, the sanctity of marriage, which we need so much now. The native people they were uh, ministering to, the Huale people on the coast of what was then the coast of Georgia, um, they, uh, you know, a lot of fine characteristics of their culture, I'm sure, but um, they, they practiced polygamy and women were kind of treated like, like property. And uh, the missionaries told the, told the men, when you, when, if you become a Christian, when you take your baptismal vows, you also have to promise not to practice polygamy. You take one wife for a lifetime. And they were doing it. You know, they're having great success. But one young man decided at one point that, no, he was going to go back to the old ways. He was in line to possibly become the next uh, chief of the, the tribal unit. Uh, the other Christian Indians or Native Americans said, uh, can you support him in you know this? Uh, to the priest, and the priest said, well, I can't. He's, he's not a man of his word. He's, he's broken this promise he made. He became infuriated, went into the interior of West Nile, Georgia, found some pagan allies, and came back and systematically murdered five, five missionaries in separate locations. So in a sense, it's such a powerful thing that today when the sanctity of marriage is challenged so much in our culture, mm-hmm. we desperately need more testimonies like this, that these men were willing to say some things are worth dying for, and the sanctity of marriage is one of them. Now, is there a lot of history written on them that you'll that you'll be able to research? I can easily do a book. It won't be it won't be short. I'm I, some years ago founded a, a group called the Friends of the Georgia Martyrs. Became real involved, and even now I give talks and slideshows about it, and have written a number of articles about it. Uh, encourage people to, to you know ask for intercession, and um, so at least a short book could be written. We wouldn't have known much except for the fact, providentially, uh, there was a sixth missionary who instead of killing him, they, they shot him with arrows in the, I think it was like the shoulder and the, and the hip. They decided they'd rather make him a slave. And uh, so they enslaved him and he survived to terrible conditions for six months and almost naked in the cold. They tried to force him to marry, break his vows, all that. But then a group of Spanish soldiers came through the area, found him, liberated him. He went back to Havana, Cuba, uh, where the Franciscans had their, you know, conventual, uh, for that area. And uh, when the Spanish governor of Florida asked, told him, I want you to tell me what happened to all these that he knew about, he refused because, and he had the right as a priest because a, a, a priest wasn't supposed to be able to give testimony that could lead to execution, um, to the death penalty. Mm. And so uh, he didn't, but then eventually his superior there in the Franciscan uh, monastery said, under obedience, you must write this story. So he's oh, the main... He's the main uh, source we have that we have background information about them. Some of them, uh, you know, their their previous lives, that kind of thing. And then, of course, to, uh, the book will update the story too to bring us up to the present. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Well, I hope when you write it that uh, you'll come back on with us. We had a great time with you. This is great. I I really really enjoyed reading the book. Um, I'm actually still have about a quarter of the book left. I'm hundred percent finishing it. I loved it. Um, and for anybody out there that is considering getting it, this really, this is an amazing book. I thought the way you wrote it, how it was just seamlessly done where it's, it's literally like reading a biography of Joseph. It's not chopped up and all these different sections. And some of the, some of the coolest parts of it are seeing the typology in it and you see some of these stories from the old testament come and and you see them fulfilled in the new almost and it's i mean i love seeing how joseph had the same tension
tensions with his older brothers and they were awful to him. It's it, some really awesome parts. So um, I really hope everybody goes out and picks up the book. I had a great the, time uh, with you, Dr. Thickpin. Rob, is there anything the, you wanted to add? The link is in the, the description of the video to uh, to the book on Tan's, Tan Books. And then I guess one thing I just wanted to read before we finish is um, my favorite section of the book was uh, on the death of Joseph. Yeah. Now he really really died from his love for the for the Virgin Mary and for and for Christ. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to read two paragraphs here. We must note then that the long sickness and sufferings that preceded the death of Joseph were not the sole cause and occasion of his passing away. For with all his infirmities, he could have extended the term of his life. If, <clears throat> if to these infirmities he had not joined the fire of his intense love within his breast, so that his death might be more the triumph of his love than the effects of original sin, the Lord suspended the special and miraculous assistance by which Joseph's natural forces had been enabled to withstand the violence of his love during his lifetime. As soon as this divine assistance was withdrawn, his nature was overcome by his love. The bonds and chains by which this most holy soul was detained in its mortal body were at once dissolved, and the separation of the soul from the body that is death took place. Love was then the real cause of the death of Joseph. This was at the same time the greatest and most glorious of all of his infirmities. For him, death was but a sleep of the body in the beginning of real life. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So, Dr. Thigpen, we really had such a great time. We, I really, I, if anything else you ever want to promote, please just reach out to us. We love having you on. Um, this was a fun time, man. I appreciate it so much. I, I, I just love you know, to read the book and you're engaged and uh, make for a great conversation. Thank you for your insights. And uh, I, I want to wish you and all your listeners. Uh, Blessed rest of Advent and, and the merriest and most blessed of, of Christmas celebrations. It's a great time to be thinking about the Holy Family. Yeah. Definitely. And I'll tell you, anybody that doesn't realize, it is a very easy read. Like, this isn't a 900-page book. It's a very easy read. You could probably do it in a couple of nights. Two hours. I mean, it's it's a yeah. very easy read. It's a, it's a beautiful book. Uh, yeah, this is it right here. So, guys, please go buy Dr. Thigpen's book. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Thigpen. We, we hope to see you again. Thank you both. God bless you and all your listeners. All right, Rob, thank take you. us out, bud.